views on the deterioration of Congress. This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. After a year of minimal lawmaking, the public and the media are disappointed with Congress again. And the members don't seem very happy either, but they keep acting the same. How much has Congress deteriorated and why? This week, we hear from former members of Congress on their views of the institution in American politics. They have the experience of seeing it firsthand with a real basis of historical comparison, but also some distance from the electoral incentives that may make current members run scared. This week, I talked to Alex Theodoridis of UMass Amherst about his new survey of former members of Congress. You'll hear their insights on January 6th and polarization, and their favorite presidents and leaders from the past. The former Republicans seem to recognize their party's plight, and everyone sees dysfunction. Alex also compares their views to his research on the nature of partisanship in the mass public. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So what were the biggest findings and takeaways from your new survey of former members of Congress? Uh, well, you know, we found we, we, we found a bunch of things that I think are interesting. Um, and this is this in some sense right now is just the tip of the iceberg because we had a, a few different objectives for this. And the first objective that we're addressing is sort of things that that are interesting to the, the broader conversation uh, in the media about politics. So those are really the first things uh, we've analyzed. And we, we've, we found a bunch of different things. I think one of the one of the findings that has really stood out is, you know, this gap between uh, Republican former members of Congress in our survey and the Republican electorate. And then obviously uh, not based on you know, polling information, but based on uh, public stances taken, uh, the gap between these former Republican members of Congress and current uh, Republican members of Congress and elected officials more broadly. Um, you know, we find, uh, you know, over 80 uh, percent saying Biden's election was legitimate. Uh, 64% think Trump's claims uh, to have won the 2022 election uh, threatened American democracy, uh, big differences on opinion about January 6th. Um, so th- that, that's, that's one big area of findings, but we have some really interesting uh, results uh, related to uh, threats, uh, political violence generally. Um, members, ha- more than half of them, uh, say that during their time in office, they or or their family received threats. A lot of them say their staff received threats. Uh, those numbers are increasing over time based on when they served. Um, and sadly, uh, the numbers are much higher uh, for women, African-Americans, and, and Latinos. Um, we have a lot of stuff about Congress. So, so these these former members tell us that Congress is uh, not functioning very well. In fact, the top word used by far was dysfunctional, and then that's followed by partisan, uh, polarized, divided, mess, right? So not a very uh, positive take on uh, the current state of affairs in Congress. Um, And then we had some questions about women uh, candidates, and we saw some interesting uh, divides there, namely that uh, men uh, in our sample, former former members of Congress who are men, uh, were much less likely to recognize uh, and and note that uh, that women candidates face uh, certain challenges when when running for office. Um, 
So we, we covered a lot of ground in the survey. This, as I said, is just a, a tiny little snapshot of uh, what we what we have put out there. Uh, and the hope is that this will continue to, to you know, provide fodder for the for the general public discourse, but also as a next step, um, start producing some real academic findings uh, with a with a pretty wide ranging survey that we that we got um, this elite sample to fill out. So you normally uh, survey voters. So how did you uh, get into this? Uh, what's the what's the backstory here, and what were you hoping to achieve? Yeah, yeah. So this th- this is, as you know, a, a departure for me for sure. I uh, I you know am I'm mostly a political behavior, political psychology uh, guy, and um, I I you know work at the UMass Poll as one of the co-directors. And we mostly focus on, you know, the mass public, uh, polls of the mass public, and that's sort of been my bread and butter. Um, and that still is the, the thing that brought me into this. But one of, the, uh, one of the, the, the way this emerged is sort of through this, uh, the serendipity that you kind of uh, often rely on in, in science. Um, and that is that uh, a former, a current mentor of mine, but a, a really good, a good friend of mine who I worked for actually when I was in college, who was my former member of Congress, a guy named L.F. Payne, uh, who was a you know Democrat from from the Fifth District of uh, Virginia, um, actually the the not the last Democrat to represent there, but but the second to last Democrat to represent uh, that district. And uh, he was a blue dog Democrat. I, I got to know him, worked, uh, in, interned in his office when I was in college, worked on his lieutenant gubernatorial campaign um, while I was also in, still in college. Um, he actually happened to mention to me one, one time when we were talking that uh, he was the president for a two-year uh, term of this organization called the U.S. Association of Former Members of Congress. And, uh, and, you know, sort of a light bulb went off over my head because uh, I'm always looking for ways to, you know, to, to leverage those sorts of connections um, for the sake of research. And um, the first thought that popped into my head is that maybe there would be a, you know, a, a mutually beneficial um, opportunity here to uh, conduct a survey of their membership. Um, and, you know, they were created by an act of Congress. Uh, their membership is this broad, broad base of really all former members. There are a few people that, you know, aren't on the email list um, for various reasons, you know, like Barack Obama and, you know, people people like that who uh, whose emails are probably not just uh, uh, particularly <laughs> easy to get, um, in, including Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, <laughs> you know, all sorts of people like that. But uh, they have an incredible um, email list that became our sample frame. Um, and they have they have just a great reputation among these former members, uh, and so that allowed us to get I think a really great response to this survey, uh, and end up with uh, you know 293 former members starting the survey, um, and and doing at least part of it, and and uh, 237 making it all the way to the end. And this was a long survey; uh, it was you know almost almost an hour. Uh, the, the median time filling it out was 47 minutes. So uh, this was a big time commitment. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, and I think without that connection to the association of former members of Congress, uh, we wouldn't have had that access, certainly, 
um, just from a practical perspective, but also, but also, you know, in terms of a repu- you know, their reputation being part of it. Um, so what was I hoping to accomplish? My, you know, my main goal with all of our uh, surveys and, and really our main goal at the UMass poll is number one, to serve um, scholarly pursuit of, of knowledge. Um, so one of my big goals with this was for uh, these data to inform our understanding of Congress, of electoral politics from the perspective of, of, of this elite sample. Um, and, and then we also like to uh, be public facing. And so we want to include things in there that are going to be relevant to the discourse that the, the media are engaging in and, and, uh, and, and be able to inform and enrich that discourse, you know, beyond the sort of horse race kind of thing um, that polling often uh, contributes to. And, and so those are, those were my two big goals. And then the organization itself was very interested in finding out some things about, you know, what, what their members cared about and, and, um, you know, what, what programs they were particularly into and those sorts of things. So you found that uh, Republican members of Congress uh, were much less uh, supportive of, of Trump's actions than Republican uh, voters, and especially that their views of, of January 6th were a lot different than what it seems like uh, current Republican officeholders uh, think. So what were the big indicators of that and what were the big comparisons that stood out for you? Yeah. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned before, I mean, this is this is the thing that has most um, informed the dialogue uh in the media is, is this sort of disconnect, um, you know, between the answers of these former members and the answers that you get from Republican voters, um, uh, which, which are just, you know, in, incredibly different. So, you know, as I mentioned, you, if you ask Republican voters, um, whether Joe Biden's election is legitimate, um, you you know you only get about a quarter saying that that um, his election was legitimate. You know, eighty two percent of the Republican former members um, uh, are willing to say that in this poll. Um, you know, the, uh, we asked them whether Trump's efforts to to claim he won the election threaten American democracy. So that's a a stronger position than just that the election was legitimate, and and a full sixty four percent of the uh, the the the. Republican former members of Congress uh, believe that uh, only 18% of, of Republican um, voting age population uh, tells us that. Um, you know, do you support the uh, law enforcement efforts to punish January 6 participants? Uh, 72% of Republican former members uh, tell us they do. Again, less than 30%, 29% of, of uh, rank and file Republicans say the same thing. Um, and then just in terms of the way they describe January 6th, um, we get 67% of Republican former members describing um, January 6th as a riot, 53% describing it as an insurrection, right? So these are both negative terms um, uh, to describe what, what happened at the U.S. Capitol uh, on January 6th, 2021. Um, so that's those are the those are the top vote getters among former members of Congress. Uh, whereas if you ask Republican voters, seventy four percent will tell you it was a protest. 
right? Which again reflects a lot of the the rhetoric that you hear that this was just a normal protest and um, you know efforts to downplay January sixth. So uh, so really striking, really striking differences there. And I guess you know a big question that that people ask is why is this so different? And and you know one answer to that would be that uh, this is just not your uh, you know mother or father's. Republican Party anymore, right? Like that, these are former members of Congress. So uh, the current composition of Republican elites just doesn't look the same as this group in in some sort of dimension that predicts, you know, support for these sorts of ideas. Um, I can tell you, having run the survey, you know, this this is a Republican group uh, in the sample that uh, skews conservative. Um, these are definitely not you know, what most people would, would think of and certainly would have thought of at, at the, when they were at, in, when they were serving in office, um, rhinos, um, this includes lots of people who are still very active Republicans. Um, certainly the Republican party has changed. So, so I, I have no doubt that that's, um, th- that that would still be the case. Another explanation would be that, you know, there's this electoral pressure, uh, being felt by current Republican elected officials. Um, and I suspect it's a little bit of both, right? I, I suspect that if you were to be able to run a survey like this among current Republican members of Congress um, and assure them, actually get them to fill it out and not their staff and assure them of you know uh, absolute anonymity, I suspect the numbers would look a lot closer to what our our sample of former uh, members of Congress looks like. Um, at the same time, I suspect that if you took our sample of former members of Congress, um, that their public and they were still in office, still facing the electoral pressures um, that some of the current members face, uh, they would, th- th- you know, they might be a little more reticent, um, you know, to take to take these sorts of positions. So I suspect it's, you know, partly composition. Uh, but also partly just the dynamics of the pressures that people face uh, when they're in office. Um, I would add that that's that's really problematic because you know these these current members are responding to pressures um, that they perceive from uh, voters from their electorate, and you know that electorate doesn't have these opinions in a vacuum, right? They're they're generating these opinions be- partly because they're hearing, um, you know, either. Uh, you know, pro-Trump rhetoric from Trump himself and elites, other elites, uh, or just crickets. They're not hearing anything. Um, there, there isn't a big, you know, voice out there of current Republican members of Congress, um, you know, saying, no, you know, this, this election was fair. We lost. Uh, we're going to try to win again. We don't engage in violence, those sorts of things. So as you mentioned, another uh, big finding uh, was that they were taking threats of electoral violence pretty seriously um, and that they had uh, they or their staffs had faced a, a lot of threats. And this uh, was bipartisan. Um, so, so what were the big findings that, that stood out there and how did you interpret them? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is bipartisan and this is something that I think it may be underappreciated because um, we've actually recently heard um, members of Congress and uh, this certainly came up during the whole speaker um, issue. I think people were saying that they were receiving threats if they didn't support Jim Jordan. Um, 
you know, and, and some people responded, well, you wouldn't receive those threats if you supported Jim Jordan. Um, you know, <laughs> and so, and so I think there is, you know, we, we, I, we just talked about electoral pressure and that certainly is a big, uh, a big, a big dynamic, right. Especially when you think about being primaried and things like that, you know, as, as, as we learned in, in grad school, uh, all, all po- uh, politicians sort of run scared, um, even, even generally when they're pretty safe. But, um, you know the 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 threat of violence um, and just the the discomfort of receiving threats uh, can really shape what people are willing to do and say um, in the public sphere. And so I think it's important to recognize threats uh, to elected officials, but also to election workers, et cetera, as as a real problem. And and certainly it's discouraging that this there's been this upward trend, right? So more than half of members overall told us that, um, you know, that, that they or their family received threats, but the, uh, the, the rate of those threats seems to increase over time based on when the members were either elected or the last, the last Congress in which they served. Um, and then of course, the fact that, um, you know, it's probably not surprising, sadly, but the fact that, you know, oh, members of Congress who are women and um, especially, you know, uh, women of color, uh, men of color uh, tend to receive more of these threats. Uh, these are just very troubling things. And they're not just um, problematic if those threats become violence. Uh, they're problematic because they can shape behavior. Um, and again, this is not limited to one side or the other. Uh both, you know, people from both parties uh, tell us they receive threats, and uh, and it certainly you would think that it shapes uh, it shapes attitudes and behavior when when these kinds of threats are out there. You know, is it is you, you sort of you don't want elected officials thinking, well, you know, is it worth threats to my family for me to take this stand? Right? People will often not choose you know, we have the expression, this is not the hill I'm going to die on. Well, you know, that's not how we want elected officials to be thinking about their, uh, how, how they uh, represent the public. You also asked them uh, to, in open-ended responses, to describe both Congress and the political environment. And here they sounded a lot more like other political observers and maybe the public uh, in that they were, were pretty negative about the institutions uh, in which they, they served. They said Congress was dysfunctional and the political environment was polarized. What, what else stood out in their, in their more textured responses that you received? Yeah, so we did a lot of things. Um, with with open-ended questions uh we tend to do some of that with the general public but it's i I felt like for this survey uh it really you know with this with this elite sample it really made sense to um to let them run with it a little bit on some of these things uh rather than you know structuring their responses and uh we've gotten better and better at being able to interpret um open-ended responses, you know, with the advancements in Texas data, uh, techniques, et cetera. Um, and yeah, what we found, you know, both through just kind of the visual evidence that you can find in, you know, with, with word clouds, which, you know, the news media like, and a lot of times, uh, you know, work well on social media, um, but don't always tell you that much. Uh, in this case, some of them really did. I mean, the, the, 
the responses both about Congress and about politics generally were just overwhelmingly negative, uh, almost almost exclusively negative. And actually, the the ones that weren't negative were in some ways more informative. You'd get a few people, you know, who would say, "Oh, it's you know, it's not quite as bad as." people think, right? There was nobody saying like, okay, this is, you know, things are actually working pretty well. Um, so it was, it was almost more striking when you receive, when, you know, would read one of the responses that, that, you know, sort of tried to downplay it, but in downplaying it basically said like, okay, if, if our expectations are that it's at, you know, 11, maybe it's at nine, um, in terms of dysfunction. And so dysfunction, polarization, partisanship, these are all things that are, uh, that all, that, that the members talked about. Um, and, and, uh, and some of them went, you know, more into specifics, uh, you know, so, so sort of reading them individually was, was fascinating for me. Um, but, but the, the, the general tone I think was just a, a, a real takeaway. And these, this is from people who, you know, have, a lot of them have been part of this, not that long ago, right? We do have people back to the '60s, um, but we have, you know, we have people in there who, uh, you know, were served in the in the most recent Congress uh, before this one, right? So um, we haven't, we you know, didn't add George Santos yet. He wasn't former um, when when I was doing this poll. Maybe I'll maybe I'll reach out to him. Um, but but so you've got you know a lot of people who were part of this. Um, and they just see it as incredibly, incredibly dysfunctional. So one institutional concern they might have is that the legislative branch is losing power. And you did ask them directly. Um, and most saw both the uh, executive branch and the judicial branch as gaining um, power relative to the legislative branch. I think Republicans were a little bit less likely to, to have concerns about the judicial branch uh, gaining, um, maybe for obvious reasons. Um, but what do you think they have in mind uh, there, and how would you compare that to kind of our view of the institutions? Is this something that, uh, you know, if you interviewed people who worked in the executive branch, they would say it's losing power and the judicial branch that it's losing power? Or do you think that that there's might be something we're, we're missing here in scholarship about the decline of the legislative branch? You know, I don't I don't know how much we're missing it. I mean, there's sort there certainly has been some work out there, you know, suggesting this actually for a long time. I mean, there's all this, you know, talk about the imperial presidency, um, that dates back decades. Um, and, and I think, you know, obviously these individuals, um, this is their, this, this was their institution, right? I mean, uh, I can, I can say without, you know, uh, messing up, uh, confidentiality that, you know, there, nobody in this sample has been president, uh, of the United States. And, um, and I, yeah, actually, I don't know if any of them have been in the, on the judicial side of things, but, um, but this is their institution, right? And they care about the reputation of the institution. They care about the power of the institution, the esteem of the institution. And so, yes, they, they, when they look at it, um, certainly with regard to the executive, um, they feel like it's lost power on average. Um, and there's a little bit of a moving target because it says it's lost power since they served um, was the question we asked. Um, you know, so for some of them, that's a pretty high bar actually to have lost power in you know, th- you know, four to six years or whatever. Um, but uh, but but they mostly say that. Um, and then 
a lot of them say it about the judicial branch too. Um, and I think that that, that largely reflects what a lot of observers, um, you know, have talked about. I think there, you know, there is scholarship on this and, and there is sort of a back and forth. Um, but part of what, part of what happens, I just, I think is that in polarized times like this, uh, when Congress has a very hard time getting anything done, uh, the executive just grabs onto things, right? And then you have this sort of judicial review uh, that that has always been the case. Um, that if if the Congress can't respond to things that get sent back by the courts, right? Uh, then then Congress, uh, the perception would be at least that Congress gets weakened. Uh, now, a lot of people would say that Congress hasn't necessarily lost power. It just isn't using power that it has. Um, and I suppose that's true. Um, and that may be a bit of nuance that, uh, that you know, doesn't, that, that isn't relevant, that they don't, these, these former members don't particularly see as relevant. Um, but it's very, it's very hard, especially with the filibuster uh, in place for uh, Congress to uh, maintain uh, its its power, certainly relative to the executive, but also relative to, to the judiciary. So you also asked about uh, potential reforms, uh, and here there may have been a little bit less consensus. Um, and to, to my eye, it, it was a bit of a disconnect between all of the difficulties that they mentioned and the kinds of reforms that they had in mind it didn't seem quite quite up to the task. Um, things like campaign finance reform, maybe uh, filibuster reform, um, but but not a lot of re-envisioning the institutions. Um, so, so what did you think about their their perspective on on reforms? Um, where were they in agreement and disagreement? And, and how does that compare to our own view of, of what Congress needs? Yeah. And this is another one where we um, let them roam uh, somewhat. You know, we asked this as an open ended question, um, you know, and if I were going back to the sample, I would I would want to take these responses and sort of, uh, you know, um, use them to develop uh, something more closed ended because um, you do have some very part of the reason that it's that, that you know, there's there just wasn't consensus is that uh, there were, you know, there's a range of interpretations, right, of what reform. So we we asked them about uh, congressional rules or procedure, um, you know, but but yet even even asking the question that way, uh, lots of, you know, 8% uh, talked about campaign finance reform, which, you know, is sort of uh, not exactly a congressional rule or procedure, um, but obviously something that was that was at the top of their minds. Um, the filibuster, I think, was that was something that really stood out. Um, you did get some people in different directions there, but the the majority were sort of in you know in favor of making it so that um, cloture rules couldn't be used to stonewall legislation. Um, at least not so easily uh, as they are. Um, the most common category. Uh, although it it included responses in uh, in multiple directions, uh, was reforming the committee system, right? So they were very focused on that. You know how how um, uh, you know granting committee chairs power, uh, how committee members are chosen, uh, imposing term limits for committee chairs, things like that. Um, 
and uh, and you know uh, there were several who mentioned following regular order uh, more common more often. Um, so so you know that whole that category generally was the biggest category. So it's a big area of reform um, that that they are focused on. Something that a lot of them uh, seemingly you know experienced um, as a as a as something that detracts from the ability of the organization of Congress to function um, effectively. Uh, so I think that's something that that those are reform. That's a that's a general area of reforms that um, people should look at. I do think the filibuster, you know, that standing out. I think that um, you know reflects what. Uh, most people would say this is something that has changed. That's not part of the Constitution. That has changed tremendously uh, over time in recent uh, history uh, in terms of how much it's used and in what ways it's used. Um, and then there were a lot who talked about the budgeting or appropriations process. You know, changing that. Um, and there were some that that uh, about ten percent uh, talked about uh, incentivizing bipartisanship. Um, and then there, there were, there were a lot, and this is, these are connected, uh, you know, people who wanted to, uh, open the agenda, uh, and the floor to rank and file members and have a little less party discipline in, in, uh, in that regard. So, um, you know, there was, there's, there's a wide range of, um, of reform proposals, but they, they did sort of organize themselves, um, into a, into a set of categories that, uh, that, that you could really sort of code them uh, into. And I think that, you know, as members of Congress, current members of Congress consider reforming their institution, uh, these are views that hopefully they will take seriously. So you also asked them about uh, presidents. Uh, and uh, one of the most interesting things here was uh, to, to name the, the best or most effective president in their own parties uh, since World War II. And interestingly, the Democrats uh, liked Bill Clinton uh, the best with LBJ second and the Republicans uh, liked uh, Reagan by an overwhelming um, uh, margin. And you asked them about congressional leaders and here. You also Pelosi was popular, but you had definitely on the Republican side favoring the, the old guard uh, there. So this this made me think that, uh, you know, maybe maybe these members of Congress really are uh, a different breed. Uh, than than the the people that you uh, interviewed. Um, so so what do you think there? What did you make of their their perceptions of of the presidents uh, and congressional leaders? Yeah, uh, it was the dynamics of this were really interesting. So we asked uh, each member uh, to pick the you know the the who they thought was the best, and we we made it since the end of World War II, right? Because we didn't want it to just you know everybody to say Lincoln or whatever. Um, you know, or, or uh, FDR, you know, people like that. We wanted to, to make it more relevant to the rough time frame during which they've been around. Um, and, uh, and so we asked them each to give us the best from their party, from the other party, uh, both in terms of president and congressional leaders. And it's kind of interesting how these uh, you know, how these formed the, the one, as you mentioned that, that surprised me a little bit was, uh, you know, just how popular Bill Clinton uh, was among Democrats, um, especially since I think, you know, this is he he's he's probably lost popularity among rank and file Democrats um, over the years. 
and uh, and and seemingly not so uh, among this group. Um, and also, what was interesting is that you know if you'd asked me in the '90s, um, you know I'm old enough to remember the Clinton administration, and uh, if you had if you had you know asked me in the '90s, would Bill Clinton be sort of a bipartisan choice on something like this? Uh, that that would that would be. I, I would have suspected no, um, but I guess it shows you how polarization has grown over time. That 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 is a period where the people look back on, um, you know, where we're as a as a safe pick uh, for Republicans as a as a, uh, a Democratic president. So um, you know he does well uh, among Republicans, uh, and as you said, he did did the best among Democrats. I think part of that may be that. You know, a lot of these people probably served under Bill Clinton, uh, probably appreciated the way he dealt with Congress, um, uh, which is different from. I, mean, I don't think I don't think Obama's reputation was as somebody who was you know spending a lot of time uh, working members of Congress. Obviously, you know Biden probably would be, um, but because uh, he's very much a creature of Congress, uh, but he you know is is you know, current, the current president, and also um, probably, uh, you know, more polarizing just because of the fact that he's the president right now. Um, I was a little surprised that Lyndon Johnson, um, you know, uh, was more popular among Democrats than, say, John F. Kennedy. Uh, That surprised me a little bit. And I think that probably reflects uh, the, the sort of waning import of the Vietnam War, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, as a disqualifier uh, from, you know, by these elected officials, elected Demo- or formerly elected Democrats, um, and, and a recognition, because he also very much a creature of Congress, right? Um, somebody who really worked with Congress to pass some, some you know, really big legislation uh, on the domestic front, right? So uh, I think there's, you know, that's probably the, the, the source of, of his popularity. Um, and, uh, you know, Harry Truman was, I think, the safe choice for Republicans, you know, um, and John F. Kennedy also, they, they sort of viewed as a safe choice uh, for Republican members. Um, in terms of the Republican president, you know, by far, uh, Republicans chose Ronald Reagan, um, and, and Democrats chose Eisenhower, right? Those are the, those are the sort of, um, you know, great conviction, uh, about Ronald Reagan from this group, uh, and, and I guess willingness to, to, to say that, you know, Ike was okay, uh, among Democrats, uh, who also actually meaningful numbers of Democrats chose George H.W. Uh, Bush, right? So those are those were kind of the two uh, default choices. Um, you know, on the leaders, I think uh, the the popularity of Nancy Pelosi was pretty striking among Democrats. Uh, she really, um, you know, seems to, and, and again, I think part of it is just how many of them served uh, with her. Uh, at various points, but but she does very much have a reputation among Democrats as uh, being a a very very effective um, uh, congressional leader uh, in the party. Um, yeah, and then you know Bob Michael and uh, uh, and John Boehner uh, up up near the top for uh, for Republicans. It's you know you're definitely not getting you do, you got a decent number of Newt Gingrich actually 
uh, among Republicans. But uh, Bob Michael benefiting a lot from uh, from Democratic votes uh, in terms of in terms of that rank ordering. So you know th- those were sort of done uh, kind of for fun. Those were among the the less academic uh, scholarly questions we asked them. Um, but it was interesting. I think it was interesting, and I think actually there's probably some stuff that could be done. Uh, from a scholarly perspective, looking at um, you know the different dimensions that these that they seem to have uh, used in judging these uh, congressional leaders and presidents. Yeah, just to follow up there. I mean, it might be a blind spot um, among uh, scholars that we're just not necessarily. Uh, on the political science side, uh, maybe on the historian side, more interested in the individuals um, and their effectiveness. But but I was struck that there did seem to be a uh, des- desire to to get things done and picking the people who um, kind of had that you know ha- had that history rather right. than necessarily just the the the, the firebrands alone or the most recent people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I think that's right. I think also striking is the, you know, the the role of polarization in this, and so this, you know, which which for most of these things tended, you know, that that's why I think Clinton is such a bipartisan choice, um, you know. Whereas again, you wouldn't have expected that if if you had taken this survey in you know in 1999 uh, <laughs> by any means. So in the in the release uh, announcing these these results, um, you say that uh, both uh, members of both parties uh, recognize a five alarm fire for our democracy. Um, there might be some hesitation to 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 see that uh, in these results and to see more of just you know people who used to be there thinking it was it was better in their day and has gone downhill since the, since they left. So can it convince us uh, that that isn't what this is, um, and they're they're recognizing uh, something big happening in American politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think both things can be true. Um, you know, I, I do think, um, you know, there is a tendency to sort of uh, pine for the, the good old days uh, in terms of in terms of Congress, especially. Right. There's, uh, you know, a lot of this sort of, oh, they these, you know, they they travel more now. They don't live in D.C. They don't hang out with each other. Things were better when everybody was, you know, buddy, buddy and, you know, would go grab a drink. Uh, before and of course, those are also periods where you had very few women, and you know, if, if, if you were um, less, just less diversity um, in 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 Congress. Um, but I do think they point to uh, you know some things that have changed over time. So I mentioned that a lot of them talked about the filibuster, right? And this is despite the fact that obviously just by composition, more of these individuals served in the House than in the Senate, right? So, so you know, a lot of them went out of their way to talk about something that was about the other chamber. Um, and, you know, that's something that has just empirically, you know, you can, you can just observe that the way the filibuster is used uh, has changed dramatically. It's just not the same thing as it once was. And it's not in the constitution, right? It's just a rule. Um, it's just the way the Senate has chosen to operate. And, and there's a lot of reluctance to change it as we've seen, right? To get rid of it, even among people who in the current moments, whose, whose side would benefit, um, in the current moment and, and who, whose side probably, you know, like a Joe Manchin or a, a cinema, um, you know, the Democratic side, I would 
I would venture to say as the party that's probably, you know, less inclined to obstructionism, um, just by the nature of, of the, you know, you can, this, this refers to your work too. Um, just by the, the nature of what Democrats typically are trying to accomplish as opposed to what Republicans are typically trying to accomplish. Um, the filibuster probably is asymmetric in its impact. Um, but still, you know, members are kind of reluctant to get rid of this thing that they're used to and that they feel like they might use uh, in the future. And, um, and so, you know, I, th- I, th- I think that there are specific things that they talk about, um, certainly things like threats of violence um, that pertain to changes in the way politics, um, you know, exists today, uh, as opposed to, you know, long time, a long time ago, but also not so long ago, right? The, the ramp up has been tremendous, right? We, we thought a lot of people thought things were pretty polarized in the eighties under Reagan. We certainly thought things were polarized in the nineties, you know, with the Lewinsky stuff and, and, um, all the stuff about Hillary care and, you know, the, the, the Republican uh, revolution under Newt Gingrich, um, all of that seemed very polarized. And then, you know, things seem just impossibly polarized under Bush. And then it just keeps, you know, keeps going. Right. I I sort of, uh, you know, we're, we're both uh, Berkeley PhDs. Um, You know, I, I, so we, we spent a lot of time reading and probably in the Jack Citron orbit to some extent, spent a lot of time reading about prop 13. The whole polarization thing sort of reminds me of like California housing prices uh, where like in the seventies, people thought they had skyrocketed. And if you look at the chart now, it's like, you know, there was this tiny little blip um, that, 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 produce this reaction, uh, to property taxes. And I think that's, that's just the way polarization is like, we keep thinking, um, things are so polarized. And so I, I, as somebody who studies polarization more than Congress, in fact, I'm not, as you, as you noted, I'm not really a Congress scholar. Uh, I'm a public opinion scholar and, a and, and somebody who focuses on partisanship and polarization, uh, that obviously connects to Congress in some very big ways, uh, as as a lot of the literature, like work by Francis Lee, um, has 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 pointed out, um, I just think they're 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 onto th- things that make a lot of sense, um, and I think they're, you know, they're they're we should take seriously the opinions of these people who have been involved at the very very highest levels uh, of American politics. Uh, and and know how Congress can work, um, and see the ways in which, in a lot of cases, it doesn't work, um, and are you know in aggregate can speak uh, and maybe prompt some some uh, some changes. Uh, so I, I generally think that you know that's the, some of their stuff about some of their takes on Congress specifically might be a little bit like you know longing for a past that never really existed. Um, but their takes on politics generally uh, very much align with what I what I think I and pretty much all other observers um, have seen. So despite all of these uh, complaints, they still say that they would uh, run for office again. Um, uh, this 
um, got me thinking about, you know, who, who would actually say that they wouldn't do it? Is that about kind of regretting an important part of your, your, your life? Um, would John Boehner, who seems to be uh, really enjoying his post-political life much more, um, still say, you know, he, he, he would run again? Um, what did you make of that result? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I took it as, as, you know, a positive, a positive result, uh, that, that a lot of them now, of course, not all of them. I mean, you know, you have to sort of establish a baseline of what we think is, you know, what we would, what we would expect. Um, but, but certainly most of them say if they were starting over today, starting their career today, would they run for office? And they, um, and they disproportionately, you know, in like, 70 something percent say that they would. Um, and, and so I think that's positive, right? That they're not so discouraged, uh, that they wouldn't throw their hat in the ring, uh, right now. I think part of it is certainly what you, what you say, right? Um, the same sort of psychology that leads all parents to, to, you know, say that, um, they, they don't regret for a second, uh, the choice to have kids, uh, if my kids are listening, I don't regret for a second the choice to have kids. Um, but you know, there, there, it's a, it's a well-known sort of feature of psychology that it's, it's a very difficult thing to, to express regret about something, especially something so big, uh, as having kids or, you know, entering public service. And for a lot of these people, you know, serving for, uh, years and years, um, in both Congress, but also other capacities, right? Uh, both before and after uh, they served in Congress. So, um, I, you know, I think it's I think it's some of you know a genuine hopefulness and some of what you what you mentioned, which is that general you know tendency to reaffirm choices that we've uh, that we've made in the past. Um, I do worry about, and this is something that you know in the in the coverage of this survey that people have made this connection. Uh, we do, there's been a quite a number of retirements, uh, recently. Uh, this is the season for that. Um, this is not necessarily a year where you would expect a flood of retirements. You usually expect that in year, a year when like, you know, one side is just going to get throttled or you expect one side is going to get throttled and people just don't like to go out on a loss. So they, figure I might as well, I might as well drop out. Now, this is not one of those years where there's just a clear kind of, you know, it's going to be bad uh, for one side. We don't really know which way things are going to go. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of the members who have, so the numbers seem a little high, but a lot of the members in particular who have announced retirements say that it's because it's just not a, a productive, enjoyable place to be anymore. Right. There's a little bit of that, you know, you can take this job and shove it uh, kind of tone to some of these announcements. Uh, and that, I think, is a really troubling uh, trend uh, because, you know, there's there's, you know, work that's been done by a number of, of people suggesting, including some, some great work by Danielle Thompson um, and others. Lee Drupman has written about this. Uh, about just when you get these sorts of people selecting out of Congress for the reasons that people seem to be selecting out, because it's not a place that's easy to, you know, where you can get things done, where you can uh, make an impact. Well, you're selecting out people who are probably the type 
of elected officials we ought to want more of, and you're possibly selecting for, you know, there's still going to be a Congress. There, you know, the, the Congress, we're still going to have people run for office and get seated in Congress. And it may be that we're selecting for a type of person who wants to be in an environment um, and, and that wanting to be in that environment is indicative of a disposition that maybe not what we ought to be um, selecting for in terms of our, uh, our representatives in this representative democracy. So you said it's a departure uh, in the topic of your scholarship, but it's definitely not a departure in your kind of view of the role of a scholar. Um, you have remained actively uh, engaged in learning from practitioners um, through the whole time you've been in political science, and I know you're still bringing them into the the classroom. So, um, y- you know, you you definitely have viewed that we have something to learn from them, um, and and they they can. Uh, be more directly engaged with what we're finding in political science. So, so what is it that that we should be paying attention to that that political elites and practitioners know, and and what are some things that maybe they uh, ignore that that we know more? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, and you see this in the survey. Actually, it's not it's not stuff that we've really analyzed yet. Um, I, I think most uh, most elites still kind of. Um, you know, believe their own, you know, stuff that we think they must just be saying that like, you know, oh, there's this, there's this middle that's going to rise up, you know, and, um, or things like that, or just that, you know, the, the things that matter, uh, are are much, there's a tendency to focus much more on the things that they can control and they can impact, um, and that, that they're involved in. So political scientists would say, you know, like most of the game is like what party you are and the fundamentals of the moment and what your district looks like. And, you know, the things you do are just really sort of uh, only impacting things on the margins. Right. And obviously elected officials are much more focused on the things that they can control. And that's a fairly reasonable, reasonable thing. They don't need to have a 30,000 foot view of, of politics. Um, but they could also benefit from one sometimes, right? So I think that those differences in vantage point um, can be useful. Like, I think there are ways, and you know, I mean, as you know, we went through decades of not thinking campaigns mattered at all. And now, and there's still people who, who think that, right, in, in scholarship. Um, and I think there's, that often we can look to um, both voters but also especially elected officials who are observers of politics and participants in politics, we can, we, we can learn from their experiences to maybe ask questions in a slightly different way than we do, right? So get using that campaign example that, you know, we were essentially looking for persuasion, like can campaigns really take somebody from this, uh, you know, side of the aisle and move them to this other side of the aisle? Right. Um, and generally, we found not much of that. Uh, and so this the the answer was, hey, campaigns don't matter. Let's not study them for you know two or three decades. Um, whereas I think there were some useful questions to be asked about the ways in which campaigns might matter and the, the other sort of mechanisms for campaigns having an impact. Um, and now we've started to do that. And I think probably if we had listened to people in quote unquote real world politics, 
um, a little more, we, we might have looked for those things. And I think that's just one example. I think there are other ways in which we can, we can take cues, not necessarily just take at face value, but take cues from the things that people who are active on the ground think are important and learn about ways in which those things either are or aren't important um, and maybe in some more nuanced ways than we normally would come up with ourselves. Um, and at the same time, I think that um, it, it's it's useful for practitioners, you know, to hear from people who are looking at things sort of from a distance the way we are, uh, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from Bette Midler or whoever wrote that song, um, that you know, that, that when you can, sometimes if you can look at the broader dynamics, you might see something coming like the polarization that we, uh, are in right now. Um, you know, or some of these, some of these bigger dynamics that really can be, uh, you know, where your, where your little actions, if you think of them in the broader context, you know, might be slightly different. So I, you know, I think it's, I think there are things that can be learned, um, in, in both directions. And I just think from a practical perspective, um, and I think this project is a, you know, a, a great case of that, but there are lots of other ones. Uh, more and more, we're learning that engaging with partners in communities um, and organizations out there and politicians, um, that there are just opportunities for conducting research in ways that we haven't done before um, and that can be very, very fruitful. So this uh, was uh, a project of the UMass Pola, but I know that you're regularly engaged in surveying the public. So what what uh, trends should we know about uh, in in regular surveys that, that you've been conducting of the public? Yeah, so we cover a lot of ground, and I think you know at the UMass Poll we sort of see ourselves as you know bringing political science to political polling uh, in, in a way that I think most other outlets, maybe all other outlets, don't really do. Uh, we're a little less focused on the horse race. I mean, we put, we put stuff in there because we want to track things and be able to use horse race type questions as, uh, con controls really for other things. Um, but, but, but we see our purpose as, you know, bringing things like survey experiments and, you know, interesting ways of asking questions that are informed by our scholarship in political science, um, you know, to a broader discourse. Uh, and so we've found all sorts of things. I mean, we've, just, we've done, we've done a lot of stuff on, uh, things related to race. Um, you know, some, some, some interesting polling related to, uh, to, you know, to, to, uh, the, the payment of reparations and opinion about that. Uh, we've done a lot of, of polling on January 6th, uh, on political violence, um, cause obviously those are, those are big interest areas of mine, um, and found a lot of interesting things, including, you know, adding to the answering the question, like, do, do the Republicans who are telling us they think Biden's election is not legitimate, do they actually believe that? Or is it just expressive, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, we just want to, we, we're just telling you this cause we want to tell you this, uh, responding. Um, and it looks like they actually do believe it. Right. Um, all evidence at least suggests that 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 actually they they think that it's not a legitimate election for a variety of reasons, but um, but that it was not a legitimate victory. Um, you know, so we have a lot of findings on 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 things like that, and 
we're about to run an, a new poll where we're going to really, you know, try and dig into understanding thoughts about the economy because that seems to be uh, there seems to be sort of a disconnect right now between what most of you know most economists would look at as the numbers you ought to look at and public opinion about the current state of the economy. So we're going to dig into that. Uh, we did we did the same thing with some open ended questions looking at. Um, uh, critical race theory and some of the opinions about that. Uh, so there's there's those types of things uh, trying to trying to get a, a deeper sense of what public opinion means on some of these issues is is what we see as our mission. And I think um, there are a number of cases in which we've you know been fairly successful in doing that. So what's next for for you? Anything you want to tout about uh, what you're working on now? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean I've got some some stuff on on violence and democratic backsliding, which I see actually is, you know, I see violence, political violence, electoral violence as a, a subset of democratic backsliding, actually. Um, so I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in the, you know, in the, um, in the role of um, the broader constituency of both parties uh, in terms of serving as a guardrail against their own side engaging in these things. Uh, so those are those are things that are more typical to, to my um, the research that I've done on, on polarization and and um, uh, and and uh, dehumanization and things like that. Um, but also I plan to do a lot, hopefully, um, you know, including lots of other scholars, people who have, you know, been involved in this and then opening things up so that the, so that these data, uh, about, uh, you know, f these former members of Congress, uh, can really be an asset for scholars who study, you know, any of the topics that we, that we covered. So, uh, I'll be working in the next, you know, few months and maybe even years, uh, on trying to, you know, produce papers, but also, you know, make it possible for other people to produce papers, uh, using these, using these data and informing, uh, what we know about, uh, you know, this important elite sample. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center, and I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. Policymakers follow informed expertise. How primary elections enable polarized amateurs. How party leaders change Congress. Judging Biden and Congress. And compromise still works in Congress and with voters. Thanks to Alex Theodoridis for joining me. Please check out the UMass poll and then listen in next time.